the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Dean Matt Spaulding joins me. He's the dean of the Hillsdale Graduate School in Washington, D.C., located at the Kirby Center. Because all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have a pile of immediately important constitutional issues. It's not usual to have big constitutional issues rise up in a parade-like fashion, but that's what the Biden administration first 100 days have done. Matt Spaulding, welcome back. How are you doing, Dean? Are you vaccinated yet? Not not yet, but as an educator, I suppose I should be. Uh, good you to should. be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, Dean Spaulding, would you give people, we have all these new audiences. Uh, no one can replace Rush, but the show is is being used to fill in for Rush in many different places, and I appreciate the honor that they've given me. Would you let people know uh, what the Graduate School for Hillsdale does in D.C.? They may not know about it. Sure. Uh, look, uh, Hillsdale College is, you know, is in Michigan. It's an old college. Uh, that's our, what we call the mothership. Uh, but we've established a, a beachhead, if you will, in Washington, D.C. We send our undergraduates here. We've done that for a long time. We've recently established a school of government, a graduate school in Washington, D.C. It's uh, really unlike any other. It's set up for people who are in Washington, so people in the administration and on, on Capitol Hill and think tanks and law firms who want to get a Hillsdale education in the evenings and on the weekends uh, to continue their their careers. So we, we study political thought and history and, and what I call statecraft. That is the kind of statesman-like attributes one would need to know uh, to apply those principles in politics. So it's it's a very unusual program, very Hillsdale-like, but right here in the nation's capital to essentially form and, and shape uh, the states from the future we need, especially in times like this, when, as you said, all of a sudden there's a raft of constitutional questions we need to consider. That's I, and I emphasize how important this program is, because if first principles are going to be debated, you'd better know what those first principles are and where they came from. So there is an emphasis on the founding. There's also an emphasis on statecraft, but there's an emphasis on the founding. And Dean Spaulding, you've been teaching the American Constitution for a very long time. Uh, Yes, sometimes longer than I I like to admit. But, uh, yeah, we we study the founding. There's this notion that when you study the founding, you're studying, you know, uh, men in wigs and you know powdered wigs in, in, in the past, but in actuality, it's one of the greatest examples of a moment in history where first principles were brought to bear on actual politics. That's why we study Lincoln, the Civil War. Um, I, I think we're in one of those great periods again when these are live questions, and we're debating our first principles in the midst of difficult practical circumstances, uh, fights on the ground, uh, very practical fights. Uh, and these are all our, our monumental questions over the next uh, you know, several decades that are going to have something to do with the status of constitutional government and uh, a Republican government 
going back to our first principles. That's why we study those things. You know, I heard my good friend and yours, Mark Levin, spend an hour this week. I was in the car and listening to Mark, and he's always going back to first principles. He does it far more rigorously than I do. I need to do it more often like Mark does. And he explained Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, he explained why we divided up the powers, the framers, why we... Why it all it's all about preserving liberty, about preserving the individual against the state. And Mark unpacked it. When you know constitutional structure, then you will consider like we have three issues today. H.R. one, the spending power and the um, uh, the XL pipeline and whether or not it's in excess of the executive's power to cancel it. Those are all first principle issues. And when I talk about a first principle issue, I mean something that you begin with the Constitution. You don't look backwards at it. What do you mean by a first principle issue, Matt Spaulding? No, I, no I, I, I think that's absolutely correct. The, this whole broad discussion of first principles and politics, I think, is a relationship between a, a first principle and a fundamental unchanging truth and the circumstances, the political thing, the particular things going on right now. And it's, and it's ability to think in ways that translate between them. So you, you actually talk about first principles all the time. Perhaps you don't realize it <laughs> as, as much, but you constantly are in the sense that you're talking about politics going on right now, but you're having that conversation in light of these, these, these principles, these organ, organizing principles of this particular nation. So we look back to the principles of the Declaration, the abstract principles, of course, but also uh, the, one of the ways that helps us structure that conversation is the Constitution, which is a framework by which we govern ourselves. So the structure of the Constitution, the separation of powers between the branches, uh, one of the most important principles of it, is key to helping us have that conversation. So how do you relate the principle to the particular? Well, you have a legislative process. How do you execute the law? How do you adjudicate? All of that becomes crucially important. And you you have to understand the framework and the principles before you can then deal with a particular thing that comes up. Shall we, shall we get rid of the filibuster? What does the spending power mean in this particular context? How much authority does, the, uh, does an executive order carry relative to legislation? These seem to be narrow, technical, legalistic questions, but they're not. They're political questions that are inherently important to how we rule ourselves as a people, based on the principles by which we have chosen to rule, to, to live, namely that all men are created equal, the principles of the founding. Now, the so key thing, all of these things come back to that. The key thing I want people to understand, the Constitution is a, is a rule book, just like the rules of golf. And I always use the rules right. of golf when I, and if you, if you break the rules, you're out of the game. So if you put a ball into a hazard mark with red, it's a stroke to move the ball out, and you got to take the stroke. You put it out of bounds, you got to play the ball for more, you put it out of bounds, and, and you get a stroke. There are all sorts of different, you can't touch the ball on the green or you get a stroke. There are all sorts of things, 14 bikes in a club. Well, the Constitution is a bunch of rules. And one of those sets of rules, one of the most important sets of rules, has to do with who controls voting. Because this week, H.R. 1 passed, and I'm looking at the Brennan Center, very liberal group, that begins with the most wonderful declaration of what this does. Uh, you know, that it modernizes and makes it easier for federal elections to be voted in. It ends congressional gerrymandering. It overhauls federal campaign finance laws. It increases safeguards against foreign interference, strengthens government's ethics rules, and more. You know, it's, it's just hard to believe this isn't a great thing. And it goes on to say the constitutionality of it is not in doubt 
because blah, 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 it doesn't really say. What do you think right. about H.R. 1, Matt Spaulding? Oh, no, it, it, look, it's, it, it's, an, it's a terrible violation of uh, the Constitution in particular, but more generally, the constitutional structure. Let, let, let me back up for just one moment and talk about how all of these things. H.R. 1 is a perfect uh, example of a, it's a particular constitutional question, but happening right now, being pushed through on an extremely narrow majority, which shows to me that there's no governing consensus right now in American politics. But pushing this through right now raises an altogether different, broader constitutional question, um, and it upends the whole relationship between the federal government and the state. So you put all those things together, this is an extremely dangerous piece of legislation, because it essentially federalizes or brings under the national government all the questions of, of uh, the authority of the states to regulate uh, voter registration, uh, it mandates uh, early voting, automatic voting registration, same-day registration, online voter registration. All the problems, which we all know happened in 2020, those are now going to be uh, mandated by the national government upon the states. So there are technical violations there. It undermines federalism. But it also is being rammed through on, on what is essentially not a majority at all. There's no consensus that, that, this, that, that, that the Democrats are uh, claiming to rule based on. There isn't one. They, 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 uh, Republicans won three more state legislatures. The Democrats didn't flip any state legislatures. They're trying to use a very narrow majority at the federal level to override what they don't like going on at the state level with an, an objective having to do with electoral outcomes. And I would add... All that together, that's a real problem for constitutional government. Let's quickly go through H.R. 1 once more. It's a massive, comprehensive, upside-downing of everything to do with elections in America from the federal level. Why does this offend the Constitution, and why ought uh, serious thinkers to reject it in whole? Well, uh, look, the uh, on the one hand, as you pointed out earlier, this... This sounds great. It's presented as a voting rights bill. Uh, and to oppose it is to take something away. But what they're saying is being taken away is the mess that occurred in 2020. Um, what the bill does is it takes a lot of rules of, of elections, uh, including how to draw district lines, and it makes all of those subservient to the federal government. Uh, it, it mandates a, a lot of procedures. It mandates process. It changes the process of drawing district lines. And, by the way, it makes it uh, you can't legally challenge it, by the way. There's a provision there for that. But in doing so, it nationalizes those. Why is that a problem? Well, there's technical reasons why it's a problem, which is to say that this is actually these are powers reserved to the state legislatures. Um, but the broader question, why is that the case? Why is that important? One way to to prevent uh, democratic politics from getting out of control, the design of the Constitution is to create various filters. This is why we have a separation of powers at the federal level. But one of the key distinctions we have is between the federal government and the state government. You break it into its different parts, and states are different. They have different majorities. They have different uh, ways. They have different um, uh, uh, interests. Um, and you allow them to establish the rules of uh, of elections, uh, granted within a broad uh, uh, requirements of constitutional fairness. 
Uh, but otherwise, these are local matters. They work, draw their own districts. Uh, the state legislature is in charge of that. Uh, that's what we call a republic. Uh, and it allows for a, 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 a movement of these opinions up through the legislative process, at the state level, and then up to the federal level. And the whole point of the American founding, and recall this is what Alexis de Tocqueville warns about uh, afterwards, is to have um, uh, a, a central government that's, that's, that's capable of doing things that it should do, but otherwise a completely decentralized administrative system at the state level. This is what allows for liberty. This has been historically true. It's worked. Um, and every time we've gotten into problems is when we nationalize things in some sort of radical way. And now, we're now I, I, I want to point out electoral it, system in the argument for this put forward by the Brennan Center, a very left wing group. It says the Constitution gives Congress broad authority to regulate congressional elections and the power to guarantee a Republican form of government in the states and the power to enforce the 14th Amendment and the power of the 14th and 15th Amendment to eliminate racial discrimination. Those are all true, not true. First of all, the Republican form of government clause has never been interpreted by the Supreme Court. Nobody knows what it means. It has no actual particular meaning. But congressional elections, the, the, the power to regulate, that does not mean the power to draw the districts. No, and, and it does mean a lot of things in terms of day-to-day uh, -day, you know, uh, activities of the states that have to do with elections, but especially not to draw the districts. That is, is, is particularly a power uh, held by state legislatures uh, because the state legislatures, they know their own state. They, are, they know the districts. The idea is the lines are to be drawn in a way that represents those districts. The, the, the key problem here is that there's this sense that all we want is uh, whatever we can do to have more and more democracy, which in general I'm not opposed to democracy. But we're a democratic republic. That is, we want to make that a deliberative democracy. How does it work better? Uh, and the way we've done that is to decentralize a lot of these authorities, especially something like drawing districts. All of a sudden in the United States, H.R. 1 and other issues have raised issues of first principle. Also on the table is the filibuster and the discussion of filibuster reform. That is not a constitutional issue. I'm going to have Matt Spalding explain that in a moment. But understand the proposal on the table right now is to change the rules of the Senate to lower the threshold for passing almost everything from 60 votes to 50 plus the vice president. That would be radical. That would change practice that is more than 100 years old. But, Matt Spaulding, it's not a constitutional practice. Uh, it's, it's not. It's a rule. But let me add to your, your point there why these two things have come together and actually nicely define the moment, the place we are right now in our politics, which is simultaneously. There's a reason why these things are occurring simultaneously. A, a, an extremely narrow majority in the Senate, we know, but also in the House is very narrow and no no state house is flipped and it wasn't a wipeout uh presidential election for that matter there's not a governing consensus and yet something like hr1 is a top priority for that very narrow majority to push through that's a problem in the way our republic republican government is designed um, and the tip of that uh, debate the place where it becomes a real problem is the u.s senate which is not designed to be merely a majoritarian institution. And the particular thing at issue here is a rule 
not in the, not in the Constitution, not itself a core fundamental principle, but a rule which has to do with um, forcing de- deliberation and discussion uh, based on the right of every senator to speak and to, to have their opinions uh, understood, even if you're in the minority, that's the kind of the, the core of where this rule comes from, that is where it comes to a head. So when a, when a majority tries to push something through that completely reforms and upends the constitutional system, like H.R. 1 does with the electoral system, lo and behold, uh, what gets in the way is the U.S. Senate. That's by design. That's by the original design of the founders. That's by the original basic uh, re- relationship of dividing the Senate and the House. How do you protect minority rights within a majoritarian system? That's the and, key issue that, that Madison was concerned about at the Constitutional Convention. That's what produces the Senate. That's what uh, ultimately, in my, my argument, would be ultimately, even though it's not been around forever, ultimately led to the, the rules of the Senate, which include the filibuster, which it's not a rule, it's not perfect. I'd like to see it be enforced, but right now it's one of the last things. It's, it's, it's this small piece, imperfect in its way, but this small piece protecting the role of the Senate in slowing down radical politics. Now, the framers originally intended the Senate to be insulated from politics and to take the long view by two measures. One, they got a six-year term so that they didn't have to face the people every two years, and one-third of the body came up every six years. So it's supposed to move slowly. Secondly, secondly, they originally were going to have senators selected by the state legislatures to make them immune from sort of popular fervor. That went out the door when the Constitution was amended during the Progressive Era to bring in uh, direct election of senators. But one of the counterbalances was the filibuster. It maintained that slowing, what was it called, the saucer in which the the hot tea or hot coffee would cool. Now, what's particularly interesting about moving to change the filibuster now is that right before the elections in Georgia in January that decided the narrow majority, and it's the narrowest it can be, it's 51-50, uh, the vice president would have to vote with the Democrats. 50, 50 plus one. Yeah, right. Yeah, 50, 50. It's as narrow as it can be. And it were those elections in Georgia were run on the explicit promise that the filibuster would not change, Matt Spaulding. And I think a lot of people heard that message. And Democrats are now trying to obscure that that's the basis on which they won even this most narrow of majorities. No, I, I think to the extent that there was a, a an agreement in that election, was to take the filibuster off the table, including statements by uh, current senators, including Joe Manchin, that says we're, we're not going to up in the, uh, the filibuster. So I think that was uh, the, key, the key issue in those elections. What disturbs me about the debate right now is, first of all, it's, it's not really a discussion about the filibuster per se. There's, there's an interesting conversation to be had about how the filibuster should operate, how it should work. Is it a real filibuster? Should they get up and debate? Those, from my point of view, were legitimate questions. The problem is that the debate right now is actually how do we get around the filibuster? How do we get around it in a way that we can push through massive controversial legislation with essentially no majority? That's a different – if you want to talk about the relationship between principles and, and circumstances, that's a prudential question we should be concerned about because that's the kind of thing – in particular the, the filibuster – and the Senate, the role of the Senate in checking the House, but also in checking the executive, it was intended to play. And so that's the thing of this issue. And I 
I think if, if the American people sent any message, they sent a message that they did not want to see that happen. Um, now, and for, turning and upending that now, I think, would be a big problem uh, in general for the Senate, but also I think it would be a very bad move uh, for a this narrow majority that the Democrats currently hold in upcoming elections. Now, I want people to understand, for many, many years, I argued that the filibuster is unconstitutional with regards to nominations because the text of the Constitution commits the advising consent to the entire Senate, not to a supermajority in the Constitution using supermajorities when they intend. And Dr. Spaulding and President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College and I have often talked about reforming the filibuster in what I'll call neutral times. Neutral times where by 60 votes they would agree to change the filibuster as it exists to a talking filibuster. And that is what Democrats say they are now for, but what Dr. Spaulding just pointed out They're not for that for the right reasons. They're for that so that they can pass unconstitutional measures. Therefore, our prior commitment to the talking filibuster is not appropriate. Now, although if they found 60 votes for it, I would have to withdraw my objection, Matt. I just don't want it done by 50 votes. That's right. I would make two two points. First of all, when they say they want a talking uh, filibuster, I'm not sure that's actually what they're talking about. Uh, what, what, we, what we want to do is, is let's enforce the filibuster, make it a real filibuster. Uh, let's, let's, it, and there are currently rules about debate, and, and it's two-tracked, and it doesn't – okay, that's legitimate. That's not what they're talking about. What they want to do is reduce the number of votes to, to uh, the, the filibuster requires. They, they, they're just looking for any way to get around it. The second thing I would point out is I still believe that, as do you, uh, as does Dr. Arn. But again, this is a rule. It's not a provision of the Constitution. Itself is not a principle. A rule is subject to prudence. Uh, It would be highly imprudent in these circumstances to make these kinds of changes. It's not. uh, It's not. uh, It's not signs of changing one's opinion, flipping on a principle. It's not merely uh, going back and forth with the winds. It's precisely what a statesman ought to do. What is the prudent thing under the circumstances? The circumstances right now are the overriding question is an extremely narrow majority, if it exists at all, wanting to put through extremely questionable, radical, unconstitutional policies. Is that the circumstances under which a deliberative body thinks about changing long-established, settled rules that go to the very nature of its deliberative function in the constitutional system. Now, uh, Dean Spaulding, I want to ask you the tough question. If the Democrats go to the country in 2022 and they argue to repeal the filibuster in the New Hampshire Senate race, where we expect it will be Chris Sununu against uh, Gene Hassan, if they do it in Arizona, where Mark Kelly will be facing probably Doug Ducey, if they do it in Georgia, where it may be Herschel Walker against uh, Raphael Warnock, if they go to the country and say, we want to change everything about the Senate and get rid of the filibuster, and they win the votes necessary to use the nuclear option, I think our position is weakened. If they don't campaign on that basis and then they try and change it, I believe our position is strengthened. If you believe in something, you ought to go to the public on it. No, I look, that's, that's precisely right. And, and actually, there are many precedents for this, one of, one of whom is um, uh, Madison himself. <laughs> he, was in, he was opposed to a, a national bank. Uh, but after the War of 1812 showed that a bank was necessary... After a long period of time in which the American people had many elections 
uh, supporting this idea, he kind of thought it through again. You're right. He, that's, that's, this stuff does matter. You, you do. You appeal to the American people. One thing that should be done at the very least is if you're going to start talking about the filibuster, nothing should be done, in my opinion, until there has been an intervening uh, congressional election in both uh, both houses, perhaps even a, a presidential election. Put it off into the future. That's how you deal with uh, raising the, the pay of members of Congress. That way their particular interests are not involved. Are we having that kind of conversation? No. Again, it just shows you this is about getting things through right now before they might lose their majority. They want to make their majority permanent. I think that's what people have to understand. Democrats are attempting to pass rules and changes that will make their very narrow majority permanent. And that that is actually a threat to democracy, little d. That's why the prudent question is, what's behind the filibuster? And that is forcing through H.R. 1, which centralizes all elections in the United States, takes away state authority, and puts in place all the things by which uh, their narrow majority was accomplished in 2020. That's, that, that is an example of a very narrow majority using that very narrow authority uh, in a factional way uh, that undermines uh, democracy, not strengthens it. And, and that anybody the left, right, center, Democrats, Republicans should be concerned about doing that right now. If you're a moderate at all and you don't like the, the waves of politics, this is precisely why you should defend the filibuster right now and not allow this to happen. And a note, uh, Matt Spaulding, uh, uh, very quickly, all of the media is supporting the Democratic agenda to change the filibuster. They've never, ever done it before, but they are all in favor of it now, and they keep right. using fake arguments that it's a civil that it's the Jim Crow filibuster that's false that's absolutely false the filibuster was used by the Democrats post Jim Crow a thousand different times so why is the media so in the thrall of changing the filibuster 30 seconds it, it has nothing to do with the filibuster it has everything to do with the agenda the problem with with much of modern uh, progressive liberalism is the rule of law itself. The Constitution is, is nothing to do with this. They want to get around it. It's for the objective. And the objective is political power and the political power to advance uh, the agenda they want. That's and that agenda is government. not the Constitution. The Constitution sets up a federal government of limited and enumerated powers. That means every power the federal government has is specified in Article 1. One of those powers is it may spend money. But we know from constitutional law, from the decision of the Supreme Court, they may not, the Congress may not attach unconstitutional conditions to the spending. For example, they can't say, here's a trillion dollars, but you have to close the newspapers in your state. Here's two trillion dollars, but you have to ban a particular religion. They can't do that because the Constitution guarantees those rights. One of the rights that is guaranteed in the Constitution is the right for people to uh, uh, be free in their ability to cut taxes, for state governments to cut taxes. The Congress just passed the stimulus, $2 trillion, on the condition that the states taking the money not cut their taxes. Ohio Attorney General sued yesterday. David Yost brought a lawsuit. What do you make of his lawsuit to enjoin that condition on the expenditure of the stimulus money? I, 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 this is a great lawsuit, um, and just to underscore everything you just said here, and to reach back to our previous conversations, uh, you've got a very narrow majority operating here, 
and it didn't flip any state houses, which means the state houses, uh, they're actually rolling their, or have three more state houses than they did before. They're as strong as ever. Um, one of the broad questions is when a majority, in this case a very narrow majority, oversteps the Constitution, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Well, one bad idea, which is oftentimes floating around in our history, didn't go the right way, was nullification. John C. Calhoun, you nullify laws. The better answer, the better answer, the one that Madison recommended, is something called to interpose, which said that states especially should use the powers they have to challenge what the federal government is doing. And we got great examples of that. Uh, the one here in Ohio, and if we get to it, the one in, in coming out of Texas and Montana. But here, you've got a, this is a classic challenge uh, having to do with uh, the federal and the state governments. This is a federalism case. Uh, the, the, um, uh, the Biden administration's $1.9 trillion stimulus, it's hard to say that word even, included a bunch of money for states. They say, you can take this money only if you don't uh, uh, raise your taxes. Cut your taxes. Cut your taxes. Only if you don't cut your taxes. We oftentimes focus on the spending clause about what Congress can spend money on. We love to have those debates. We oftentimes ignore the, the opposite side, which is how their spending affects the states. There, there's an extremely well-established constitutional principle, well-established for a long period, including by uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, which is the federal government cannot use its spending power to, to – it doesn't confer an ability to force the states to govern as they would like them to govern. You can't commandeer the states to do things for you. Or, as Chief Justice Roberts says, you can't dragoon them into doing your will. And that's precisely what's going on here. So this is actually a very good case uh, that he's brought because one of the powers that the state legislatures have, and they will defend to the death, is their own ability to set their tax policies. Yes. And the federal government can't use that. And and note that that there's a period in which this would affect, and it actually goes right up to the next presidential election. This is just a blatantly political move on the Biden administration's part to prevent states from cutting their taxes, which might have a bad political effect on the on the future of the Biden administration. And, and let's so sneak in the other one as well, also, Matt. Yeah. Let's get the other one in. Two, two Attorney General Montana and Texas matched David Yost in Ohio with a, a bold move. They are suing to force the Biden administration to let the XL pipeline be built because they say that was an appropriate use of the congressional legislative authority signed by the president and not subject to cancellation by the president acting on his own. Do you agree? I, I, this is also a great case. Uh, and this is a classic example of this is a, uh, a, a disagreement between an executive order and a lead piece of legislation, in this case, congressional legislation. So it's Texas and Montana, but they're joined by Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, uh, North Dakota. It's, it's a great mix of states, uh, all having to do with this XL pipeline. Well, the problem is this, this has been going back and forth, back and forth. But in 2011, Congress passed a law which President Obama signed requiring the president to grant an application to construct and operate the pipeline. If the president said, didn't say within 60 days that this was, a, was not in the national interest, that would go ahead and occur. Uh, it would operate um, uh, by, by, by law itself. Um, Obama signed the legislation. He, did, he denied the permit, but he did not say it was not in the national interest. Short story is there actually is legislation here 
So he's challenging the executive order of President Biden to override and not follow through on congressional legislation. Very different type of a case, but also a great challenge. Again, these are states smartly using their powers to challenge the federal government's constitutional overreach. So the bottom line of this week's Hilltail Dialogue, take it home and remember it. The Constitution is the highest law of the land. If it doesn't comport with the Constitution, neither the President nor the Congress can do it. And that's the final say. Constitution wins. Matt Spaulding, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. The new jobs report is in and it indicates that the labor market is starting to truly recover. Nearly 400,000 jobs were added in February, almost twice what was expected. The unemployment rate is now half what it was at the peak of the pandemic. Despite these gains, Democrats are pushing for policies that could seriously undermine this recovery. The new stimulus package was supposed to include a $15 an hour minimum wage. Though saner voices blocked it from the final bill, a national wage hike was one of Biden's core campaign promises. It will be back, and that alone would be a massive hit to the jobs market. Alongside the expanded and extended unemployment benefits, it could be disastrous. Democrats are pushing for a regime in which workers will be priced out of the market while subsidizing unemployment. They want to make jobs harder to get and then pay people to not work. It's both morally and fiscally irresponsible. I'm Jerry Boyer. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.